You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. Grab your copies of God's Word. Isaiah 61 is where we're going to be. Isaiah 61, uh, verse 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab a copy from the seat backs in front of you, page 360. Uh, we're going to be really just in one verse today. Isaiah 61, verse 3. We're finishing up our series uh, called A Thrill of Hope. And so uh, I invite you to do that. While you're, while you're turning there, will you bow your heads as we pray uh, to give this time to the Lord? God, we are grateful this morning uh, for your son that we stand after the first advent, the first coming of Jesus. We stand in between uh, the next coming of Jesus where all the rights, all the wrongs will be righted, tears and sorrow are no more, and death is dead. Help us to live faithfully in the, in the now of your promises, but the not yet of their final and full fulfillment. God, help us. I just, I realize the danger today for myself uh, and for your people in this room is the familiarity of this story. Uh, that, that the familiarity would rob it of its grandeur, rob it of its meaning. I even sense, even for myself sometimes, or in the holidays where it's just church and sermons and worship are just something you gotta check to get to, the, uh, get to lunch and get to the presence. God, I pray that that would not be true of myself, not be true of your people today. That you would fill us with awe and wonder at the story. And as we just sang, uh, prepare him room, let every heart prepare him room. God, would you make room if we won't prepare it? Would you just just throw open our hearts? Would you move things around that we might leave here closer to you? In your name we pray. Amen. In 1964, uh, there was a man named Sam Cooke. He was a leading R&B artist. Uh, he wrote a song called A Change Is Gonna Come. And he wrote this song after experiencing, uh, he was a black man, and uh, his band was all African-American, and they went to a, uh, a hospital, or not a hospital, I'm sorry, a hotel in Louisiana, and they were denied entry. And he realized uh, that, that God had given him a platform And he said, I want to write a song that would make my dad proud. So he wrote this song called The Change Is Gonna Come, and the chorus goes like this. It's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. The song for him is one part sorrow because it's a recognition that something needs to change then in segregated America, and one part hope. A change will come, he says. He's waiting for the advent of the new day in American society, waiting for the advent of change. His longing, his hopes, are not unique to him. That is to say, it doesn't take long. We don't have to dig too deep in our year or in our souls to find experiences, to find times in the last year, where we looked around, looked at the heartache, the brokenness, the sorrow that kind of surrounds the world, and said, this is not how it should be. There's something deep within us resonates with the words, it's been a long, long time coming. We look around, 
brokenness in our own lives and our families' lives. But I know change going to come. We all want change in our marriages, right? We want the endless happiness and the joy that was promised on the back of every Hallmark card. We want the health that has been promised by doctors and science. We want relationships and the enduring friendships that seem to, to be a part of every book and every movie. We want families where the kids don't turn away and, and don't experience sorrow or spared trouble. Change is going to come. The Advent season, the Christmas season, reminds us uh, that change did come and change is yet to come. So when we talk about that, uh, the, this whole sermon is predicated on the idea uh, that, that Jesus, the Son of God, came, born of a Virgin Mary, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in your place and in my place, and then rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and is yet to come back to, to finally and fully redeem all of creation. And so our souls in this kind of middle, uh, middle time yearn, almost unwittingly, for a future that seems far off. And so today I want to do a few things. Number one, I want to finish our march through Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3. We've been in here in four weeks. This is our last week in it. We're going to spend the, 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 the balance of our time in verse 3, looking at the different, different phrases, uh, different promises. I want to do through things. As we, as we look at Isaiah uh, 61, verse 3, I want to pull out four changes that Jesus brings to humanity. So if we're going to look around and recognize that at least in our souls, this is not how it should be, that there is some version of who we are that just recognizes, man, something's not right in the way the world works. I want to I show from Isaiah four changes the coming of Jesus brings to humanity, and then I want to offer us a chance to look forward to the second coming. So before we get into that, I want to give a little context for those of you who are unfamiliar. Isaiah was a prophet to Israel. Israel was God's chosen people. And what we mean by that is in, in, in Deuteronomy, God says, I chose the people of Israel. And he says, not because they were great, not because they were strong, uh, not because they had uh, all of these things. I chose Israel because I loved them. That his love of Israel wasn't based on anything they could do, anything they could provide, any goodness about them, any strength of their military or army, any, any wisdom they had. God looked down and said, Israel's the one I'm going to love, and he loved Israel. And so God came to Israel and said, listen, I, I love you. I want you to be my people. And from you, all nations will be blessed. Uh, but here's the deal, Israel. You need to live in this covenant. So if you're willing to live in relationship with me, you can have my presence. You can have my blessings. It means you need to obey, faithfully obey. And if you do that, you'll have my presence. You'll have my blessings. If you disobey, you're choosing to run from me. And so you'll have the curse of distance from me and punishment for sin. And so the, Isaiah, when, it, when he's writing to Israel, Israel has spent 800, 900, 1400 years in rebellion to God. If you're, new, if you're new to church or new to this idea, it may shock you to know that God is not, he did not wake up one day and just say, I really, I'm deciding that I'm going to pour out my wrath in Israel. He waited and waited and waited. So I love these people. I want them to turn back to me. And they didn't. Uh, and so Isaiah is part conviction, part confrontation. Israel, you have a sin problem 
And because of that sin problem, you're going to be sent into exile. And when you're in exile, you're going to think everything is hopeless. You're going to think God has forgotten you. And even when you return from exile, you're going to wonder where God is. But I want, I want to show you the Messiah that is the promised one, Jesus. And so Isaiah is part, part uh, con- confrontation and part comfort. And so this is uh, Isaiah 61 verses 1 through 3 is comfort. It's meant to, it's meant to remind Israel who God is. And meant to show the promises of God to Israel before they went into exile. So Isaiah 61, <clears throat> verses 1 through 3. You can follow along in your copies of God's word or on the screens behind me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and to the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim favor, the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of the vengeance of the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those in who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Four things from Isaiah uh, verses three, uh, verse, verse three. Four things, four changes, the coming of Jesus brought to humanity. Four changes. Uh, the first is Jesus changes shame into glory. That shame with Jesus changes to glory. And so what we're going to look at here is, if you know the Christmas story, Jesus was born a virgin. He was uh, born to save people from their sins. Isaiah 61 uh, shows the totality of what that means. Not only are you saved from your sins, but you get the presence of Jesus in a multitude of different ways that create transformation in your life. So it's not just that you're saved. It's that there's new life and a new you that comes with that because of his power. So uh, to comfort all who mourn, the end of chapter two, or the end of verse two, to grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What's interesting about Isaiah 61 is one of the themes, if you pull kind of like a a thread out of Isaiah 61, uh, especially one through three, is this idea of mourning and brokenness and brokenheartedness. That Isaiah is speaking to a nation that will be broken, a nation that will be mourning, a people that will have lost everything, a people that will have lost family members, a way to worship God, a, a people that will, lost, will have lost their national identity. Not only is the promise that Jesus will save them and free them from prison, but there is a closeness that Jesus brings that will bind up wounds and bring healing to the soul to comfort all who mourn. Uh, this Almost, if you, if you kind of envision it, to comfort all who mourn, you may have this picture of like uh, Jesus with a cup of chamomile tea cuddling up with you on the couch and saying, tell me how you're doing, dear. That's not this. This is, <clears throat> when it says comfort all who mourn, to, to, for all those who mourn in Zion, the picture is Jesus on his throne in his beautiful ornate throne room and his people come to him and say, hey, I, I, lost, I lost a loved one this year and I hate it, and I don't know what to do, and I'm not sure you believe me, I'm not sure you're here. Hey, I lost my job, and I can't pay, I can't pay for my rent, and, and I can't pay for Christmas for my kids, or, or hey, my wife and I, were on, we're on the, 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 the brink of divorce, and, and you said you'd be with me, and where are you? The way, the way this works is then Jesus gets off the throne and draws near, puts his arm around you, and just walks with you, listens to you. What's comforting here is that Jesus is not some cosmic psychologist. 
He is the one who can hear, and he's the one with the power to change. That he doesn't just listen on a couch. That he, he is the God, the Lord of heaven, who comes near and draws near and says, we can change this. Walk with me, son. Walk with me, daughter. And so he, he comes in person. He comes close. He is not the God who is, he is transcendent, but he's also near to us. Israel needed comfort and consoling. They were headed into exile, and it was their own fault. God did not send them into exile on a whim. He said, listen, if you continue in this way, if you continue in your hard-heartedness, I'll basically give you over what you want, which is the Babylonians anyway, and I'll send them for judgment. In Israel, though the whole country laid condemned, there would be people in Israel, a small group of people, who in this would recognize their wayward ways, who would recognize that as a country, Israel had rejected and forsook God. Which means if you're forsaking a God, it means to reject all of what they are, all of who they offer, and to, and to turn to something else. Which is, which is if, you're, if you are an Israelite, if we just, if we just look at this thing uh, uh, honestly, all of us would think it's absurd for the Israelites to, to look back at their history and say, well, yeah, he walked you out of Egypt. He gave you, he, he, he delivered you with the 10 plagues. The Egyptians plundered themselves, gave you everything. He parted the Red Sea, killed Pharaoh, and just deliverance after deliverance and provision after provision, manna and quail, and all of this. It would be absurd for Israel to turn from them. And yet we see this is the history that Israel said, all of that is good, but what have you done for me lately? Let me make for myself an idol out of wood and worship that. This was the transgression of Israel. This was the sin of Israel was to reject a God who had proven time after time, I love you, I'll provide for you, I won't leave you. To those who mourn in Zion, he grants to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. And this is a picture, it's a, it's a relatively common picture, especially in the ancient Near East, is that when you were mourning anything, you would tear your clothes, you wouldn't have on nice clothes, you would tear your clothes, and you would cover yourself in ashes. And the picture here is people who look at themselves, look at Israel, and begin to tear their clothes in sorrow and sadness for rejecting God. Looking and saying, man, look what we did. Look who we worshiped. Look what we gave ourselves over. And I just, when we think about worshiping pagan gods, that included prostitution. That included child sacrifice. This wasn't like just going to a different church. This was a wholehearted lifestyle choice to give yourself over to a different God and worship to all the deepest parts of who you were. And so what God says, listen, for those of you, for those of you who are in Israel, and you recognize your sin, and you recognize your need for God, and you recognize that you are hopeless and helpless, I will give you a beautiful headdress. What, I mean, the, the word, the Hebrew word is turban, uh, or it also has an image of, of olive tree, olive tree uh, uh, twigs kind of uh, folded in together into a crown with, with, with flowers where there was death and destitution and sorrow and, and, and brokenness and you were defined by what you did. Over here, the Lord gives someone a beautiful headdress, honor, acceptance, and a new name, a new identity that no longer was Israel for those who would repent. No longer would you be associated with the shame of the past. For many of us, we live in invisible bondage to the things that we've done. You say, man, if, if only I could forget this thing, if only this decision I made, if only this thing I said to my friend, if only this, uh, this thing I did to my wife or to my husband or my kids, whatever it is, we live in these chains. And, and here's the thing about it. Like we begin to define ourselves 
by what we've done. It's called shame, right? Guilt is I did something wrong. Shame is I am the thing wrong. And shame can't be changed. This is the problem with it. Maybe you say, well, look, it's not that deep. I haven't done that many bad things, right? But there's this one thing I just can't stop doing. On the advent of Jesus, anyone who comes to him, the first advent, the death and resurrection, anyone who comes is removed and relieved of their shame and finds a new headdress, a new name, a new identity, a new acceptance. Which means we who come to Jesus don't have to walk around guilty and perpetually self-deprecating. We don't have to walk around as if we have to feel bad uh, and mourn all of who we were for the rest of our lives. In Christ, our ashes are turned to glory. In Christ, our shame is turned to glory. In Christ, our sin, the worst desires, the worst things, all that we bring, all of our sinful proclivities, all of it is changed to glory in Christ. We have this wrong understanding of Jesus, where we think if we, if we get close to Jesus, like, he doesn't want to get dirty, and so he kind of, like, hugs us like this, like you hug a kid who's messy, right? Don't really touch me, just kind of like that. And Jesus kind of embraces us, and this is the embrace we get, because, you know, we don't, he doesn't want to, he don't want to get dirty. That's not how it is, though. When we are embraced by Jesus, we get clean. He doesn't get dirty. We get clean. All of who we were, all the brokenness, the old man, the old flesh, the sin nature, all of that is wiped clean. Christmas reminds us that God sent a baby, gave him the name of the Savior, so he could rename all those who called upon him. Jesus came to change shame into glory. That's the first change, shame into glory. The second change is sorrow changes to joy. Sorrow changes to joy. One of, the, one of the more interesting things about Christmas and Easter is, is churches fill with people uh, who, who come and uh, this is like moms and grandmas, y'all leverage all of your maternal and you're like, will you just come to me with church? And then a bunch of people here are like, I'm here just because my mom's here. Well done, moms, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, like, well done. But what it does is it fills the room with a bunch of people who normally wouldn't be here. And, and what that does, it creates a conglomeration of a, different, of a bunch of different experiences. And, and so you think of like on, on a Christmas Eve, our church is filled with people who have spent the year mourning loss, mourning sorrow, sadness at different points. And this season, like all Christmas does is overpromise and underdeliver. Do you know how I know that? Because that soft thing that you think is a cashmere sweater under the, under the tree is socks. It's socks. You're not getting a sweater. This season offers glittering lights, bright tinsel, and sugar cookies. You, did you lose a husband this year? Have a cookie. You get diagnosed with cancer? Sing a carol. Spending the holiday alone? Watch a Hallmark movie. No thank you. This, this year, sorrow could have entered our lives any number of ways, through sickness, loneliness, rejection, death, infertility, relational conflict, unmet expectations, family conflict. See, I wish this is not how, I mean, so many of us come to the end of a year like this and say, man, this is not how I wanted this year to go. We can't really count the tears, can't count the frustration. We can't really account for the depth of the sorrow. If we were rewriting Sam Cooke's song, we'd say, for the love of God, change needs to come. And we'd sing that over and over and over and over and over. 
That would be how we'd rewrite that song. Too many homes this week are filled with sorrow and mourning. And there'll be smiles as we open up socks and eat prime rib, but they'll mask the deep heartache of a hard year. A change needs to come. And honestly, like the four changes that we're going to look through, this one for me is the hardest one to experience, hardest one to kind of reckon with. It's hardest one to believe that that it's possible that in the midst of sorrow, uh, joy can come. If it's hard for you, welcome to the club. It was hard for the Israelites too. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah would bring joy to those who mourn the brokenness of the world. And so this mourning isn't necessarily about the sin in their life. It's about they look at their own lives, they look at the lives around them, and their hearts just kind of go, something is wrong with the world and I can't fix it and I don't, can't put my finger on it, that there are, there's, there's tears and sorrow. And somehow, somehow what the prophet is saying is that joy would spring up from sorrow somehow. As we think about joy, it may help us to distinguish joy from happiness, like a, a good hamburger, that's happiness. That's not joy. Why? Because the hamburger goes away. Joy is a, is a state of being rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's joy. And, and we, we can tease this out in multiple ways. We see joy is also a fruit of the Spirit and all of this. But for the Christian, and what, he, what, what, what Isaiah is saying, what he's getting at here, is that joy is, is, is something deeper than an emotion. It's something deeper than just an experience. Which is why, which is why in the passage, he says, uh, oil of gladness instead of mourning. Uh, the prophet doesn't say joy instead of mourning. He says the oil of gladness. Which is interesting only because that phrase appears only three times in Scripture. Psalm 45, here, and Hebrews 1. They all refer to Jesus. What's also interesting is you would anoint someone with the oil of gladness. Do you know what the primary, uh, the primary oil in the oil of gladness was? Myrrh. Do you, all, do you remember who received a gift of myrrh for one of their birthday presents? It's Jesus. Just. The prophet is connecting joy to who Jesus is. In other words, he's saying, listen, you can trust that the Messiah, his rule will be sure, his scepter will be strong, and his kingdom will be full of joy. That if you go into the messianic kingdom, if you go into the kingdom of Jesus, it will be marked when it is fully realized by joy. Why? Because the one in control is the one in power, the one who provides security, the one who can actually do something. How, how lame, on Christmas Eve word, how lame would it be if we had a God who couldn't actually heal us. That'd be awful. I mean, hey, put a, put a band-aid on that gushing wound. We have a God who has the power and the ability to change us. And so for the Israelites and for us, joy wells up, not because of our circumstance. That is, joy is not dependent on your circumstance. Joy is rooted in the object of your faith. If you are the object of your faith, your own, your own goodness, your own power, your own cleverness, you're not going to have a lot of joy because you're not enough for this. If joy is rooted in the person and work of Jesus and his rule and reign, joy can spring from the most impossible places. I was thinking about this this week. Uh, joy being related to a person in charge and how that can bring peace and comfort. 
Uh, this week, our, our, our sewer lines, like, collapsed or backed up. Don't know, but it's not great. Uh, <laughs> before this week, I knew very little about it. This week, I know a little bit more. But there was this moment, and we had a bunch of different contractors come out, and real nice people. Uh, but you could, you, you could feel comfortable, and you could exhale with the ones who felt like they know what they were doing. It took us a while to find that guy. But it's, I don't know if you've ever experienced this. For me, it's like going to the oil, the oil change guys. I don't know anything about cars. I don't know anything about cars. They could come out and say, you need 17 new air filters, and it's $10,000. <laughs> I didn't know I had that many air filters. As you walk in, because I, I don't know anything about it, I can't feel comfortable. I just feel like everyone's trying to rob me. Or, or I don't, like, wherever you feel insecure, whether it's a contractor or whatever, it, it, joy, joy is like a deep breath knowing Jesus is in charge. That you can de-escalate and you can allow yourself the freedom to hope in the middle of hardship, in the middle of what is an uncomfortable situation. For the Christian, joy comes from the knowledge that God is control. God is in control, that the world is not random, that God is making all things new even now, that God is turning sorrow to joy, even if we don't know how, even if we're not sure how it all works. Jesus is king, but Christmas reminds us that our king came as a baby boy uh, so that he could show us that he's not just far. Like I just, this view of God that is so distant is not the view of God of the Bible, that he became flesh, that we might have the presence of joy in the middle of pain. And so when we think about Joy, it's not removal of the circumstance. It's the presence of God that somehow brings you close, draws you near, and allows you to breathe and worship. Just as we couldn't count the tears of this past year, we won't be able to measure the joy. Just as we couldn't sound the depths of our sadness this year at the different parts, we won't be able to grasp the depths of the joy or the heights of the joy that has been promised. That is the second change that comes from Jesus. Shame changes to glory. Sorrow changes to joy. The third is despair changes to praise. Despair changes to praise. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. One of my favorite things to do uh, when I'm just messing around online is to, is to look at uh, autocomplete, Google autocomplete memes. And if you don't know what autocomplete is, I want to show you a, a version of it. So you go to Google and you start a sentence, right? And you say, this one is, I ate a. Uh. And then you just wait for Google to populate the rest and laugh. Uh, and so this was, this was like the most appropriate one I could find. Uh, there's some weird people on the internet, man. Like the first of which is, I ate a big red candle. I don't know what that's about. Uh, I had a slug, all your bees. And so it's, it's autocomplete, right? And someone ate a baby, and that's a strange thing. Uh, and uh, like, so autocomplete is this, like you, you, you start your sentence, and then they fill it in. And it's interesting for us as, as, as humans, and, and not, not, to, not to mention Christians, one of the most dangerous practices any Christian can engage in is the finishing sentences of the future, right? Where God is still writing the story. We are, and we finish them in anxiety, we finish them in worry, we finish them in despair. And so we begin to fill in the future, and it's usually negative. I hope I don't eat a baby. Uh, this second service, we're fine. I'll never get married. 
My husband will never love me again. My kids won't ever return to Jesus. We'll never experience the joy of children. I'll never walk out of the hospital. This goes on and on. We are so prone with anxiety and worry and the fact that we don't know the future to finish the sentences in our life negatively and cynically without hope. And look, if you've seen enough brokenness in the world, you live long enough, that cynicism is well-earned because you've prayed a lot of prayers, you've seen a lot of hardship, and you've seen a lot not go your way. And so you begin to fill in the sentences of your life in despair. And here's the thing, like, despair is so powerful because it robs us of our future. When we begin to fill in the blanks, God's redemptive power has no say. We are just at the whim of a broken world. It was true for the Israelites, the faint spirit there, uh, faint spirit is despair, it's weaknesses, can't walk. It's the image of someone who got uh, injured in the woods and was being dragged along and, 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 and they were trying to be rescued and they just say, listen, uh, just leave me here to be eaten by the bears. And the team goes, okay, see ya. This despair, it's hopelessness. Things can't get better. What's to come for the Israelites' future? What's to come for our future? What is a garment of praise? He says, listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something for Israel. Instead of them being mourning over, over all they've lost and, and the despair that's in their lives, we're going to give them a, a garment of praise. And what, what we're, it's a metaphor for hope that you're going to have. You're going to have hope. You're going to be clothed in something you can't generate, clothed in something you don't have, like, like a garment of praise. I grew up in, uh, in Chicago, but my family's from the South, and so uh, like your Sunday best, right? You, you get to Sunday, you wear a, a tie for Christmas Eve, and uh, you, know, you wear a suit. Or in Montana, it's you wear camo and grizz gear. It's your Sunday best, right? Like we're just all of that. It's representative of what you're offering the Lord. And so he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you a garment of praise. And that garment of praise is hope. It's hope. When your spirit is faint, I'm going to surround you in hope. When you think all is lost, I'm going to surround you in hope. When you think your life is done and there are no, there is, there's nothing for you, I'm going to surround you in hope. Your marriage, I'm going to surround them in hope. Your kids, I'm going to surround them in hope. The deepest, deepest dreams you've not let anyone, I'm going to surround them in hope. Um, the things you want forgiveness, I'm going to surround you in hope. All of these things, this garment of praise envelops God's people in hope. Where does the hope come from? That's a great question. Glad you asked it. The coming of Jesus. All hope that we have today of our present and our future is rooted in the first advent of Jesus. Every ounce of hope that we could ever muster is generated from the fact that God came down, was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins and my sins, rose from the dead, ascended, and is yet to come back. Listen, all I'm saying is here's this event where over 600 prophecies from the Old Testament were, were exactly fulfilled. And look, you don't, you don't have to be a scientist. That's, those odds are pretty, pretty unbelievable. This so was a Christian. You had faith in that and say, man, it is true. This did happen. These things did happen. God is still coming. And so I can hope Regardless of how bad things are, regardless of what I lose, regardless of what this world can throw at me, hope can still envelop me. Why? Because Jesus came and he's coming back. Despair tells us nothing will change. Hope tells us something has already changed. Christmas is meant to remind us that God keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Israel. He'll keep his promise to you. God's Christmas is meant to kindle hope for the future. 
that the first advent, the first coming, was always meant to point to the second coming. Christmas is meant to spark praise in the dark parts of the soul. And so let me just say this, like, you can have hope today. You can have it in Jesus. It is not misplaced. It is not fanciful. It is not cynical. He came. He lived. He died. He rose from the dead, and he's coming again. You can bank on that. You can put your life on that. Jesus came so our souls can sing even in the midst of doubt and sorrow. He came to despair. He came to destroy despair fully, finally, and forever. Fourth thing, Jesus came to change. Change saplings into oaks. That they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be, he may be glorified. I want to show you a picture from my time uh, when I lived in California a long time ago. And... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, the new people from California get that joke. The rest of you are uh, tired of it. Uh, this is a picture of the Armstrong Woods. It's a, it's a redwood grove just north of Santa Rosa where we lived for a while. Uh, and the, the scale of this is hard to see. Those are like 100-foot trees, just the, and they're not at the top of them yet. And they're 14 feet in diameter, some of them 1,000 years old. Uh, they didn't start this way, obviously, right? They were saplings, right? And over the years, they had to endure fire, had to endure flooding, had to endure drought, had to endure all of that. And they stand there, towering over, towering over everything. These trees became sturdy, resilient, and strong. This is a picture of what God is producing in those who believe. Producing believers who can withstand drought, who can withstand the waves of the world, who can withstand the fires that burn away, you can with, the believers that can withstand all of the winds. For Israel, they would, return from, they would return from exile comforted, clothed, and rooted. For us, for us, we have the opportunity to become that. I like the phrase uh, Isaiah uses there. Uh, that they may be called oaks, the planting of the Lord. Uh, what, what Isaiah is saying is, listen, what's going to happen to Israel as they become righteous oaks, they will not be able to take credit for. They are the planting of the Lord, which means they are the growing of the Lord, which means they are the strength of the Lord. That all that they produce, whatever strength in the bark, whatever strength, whatever canopy, whatever, whatever faithfulness they bring, they don't get to take credit for. That it is the Lord who has done those things. It is the Lord who saved them, the one who planted them, the one who grew them, the one who strengthened them, the one who fortified them. It's the same for us. All of us come in need of being planted into good soil. All of us come knowing we cannot plant ourselves in good soil, we cannot grow ourselves, that at best, without the Lord, we are saplings being overrun by waves, being choked out by drought. We are susceptible to winds and floods. We are not rooted in Jesus. Like Israel, without Jesus, we would not choose holiness. We would not choose peace. We would not choose reconciliation with God. In fact, look, all things being equal, Right? answer this question, you know, in your heart, not out loud. Like, who among us, if given the opportunity, would choose, would choose our own desires? Like, all of us would choose our own desires. Like, very few of us would choose obedience to God. Christmas reminds us that God sent 
his son to people who could not save themselves. Christmas reminds us that Jesus had to die so we could live. Christmas reminds us that all we couldn't do, God was willing to do. And so look, Oaks of Planning for the Glory of the Lord. Here's what this means. It means if we have any forgiveness of sins, if we have any opportunity of forgiveness of sins, if that's even possible, it can't come from within us. It comes from the Lord. If we have any true comfort in mourning, if there's an opportunity for us to look at the broken world and to mourn deeply our brokenness and to mourn our sin and do it in a way that doesn't crush us, it must come from the Lord. If we have any ability to praise and despair, to, to, that, that sorrow could, or joy could well up from sorrow somehow, it must come from the Lord. If we have any strength to stand in this life and in the next, it must come from the Lord. And so Isaiah, this, I mean, this passage was written 800 years before Jesus, so we're like, I don't know, 3,000 years from that, from the writing of this, something like that. Math is fuzzy. But this is not some dusty little prophecy. This is a promise for you and me. It is Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, declaring, there is good news for the humble. You can be saved. There's freedom for the captive. You can be free. There's a life of favor from God. There's strength and restoration of what was lost. It is Jesus Christ declaring that a change is coming and a change is yet to come. It is the first advent that points us to the second advent. It is this time where we live in this, in this murky now but not yet. The fulfillment of all of his promises are still far off. And yet we know we can have hope that there is a time where there is no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more sickness. Death itself is dead and there's no more night. And all things are being made new. There's a time that's coming in the first advent points us to that. Look. Does this seem absurd to you? I think about what I'm actually saying, right? I'm saying that a virgin, virgin teenager gave birth. Well, that's absurd. And, and that, was, that it was God, God-man. And he somehow lived a perfect life according to the law and died, and somehow when he died, it was some cosmic way atoned for my brokenness, paid for my sin, and then on the third day, rose from the dead, and then 40 days later, rose into heaven to come back. Look, if it seems absurd to the human mind, that's because it is. If it seems far-fetched, you know, we're talking about second comings, apocalypses, horses, and crazy things, and new creations. If it seems far-fetched, it's because it is. If it seems too good to be true, it isn't. It isn't. He came, he lived, he died, he rose, and he's coming again. Christmas is the reminder that God became man and that he's coming back. Jesus was the change that came, and he is the change yet to come. The Sam Cooke song wasn't wrong. It's right today. It's been a long time coming, but I know change is going to come. Oh, yes, it will. Friends, things can't stay the same. By God's grace, things won't stay the same. A change is gonna come. Believe that today and hope that for tomorrow. Let's pray. Jesus, without you, we are hopeless all of our best efforts, all of our best intentions. God, they, they don't move the needle. We have this debt that we can't pay. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for giving up your throne, your space, 
to dwell among us, to become, to put on flesh, to live amongst the, the mire of our lives, to experience the brokenness of a human body, to give yourself on the cross, to rise from the dead. Thank you for coming. And so we ask you, come quickly, Lord Jesus, not out of fear, not out of escapism, but as a desire to see your redemption fully unfurled, knowing that the best is yet to come, that all of your promises are, are, are still yet to be fully realized. And so we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, that your second advent would be close, that we might relish and enjoy the redemption of our bodies, of our hearts, and of this world. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church, or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.